Let's pray. Lord, your word says that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray this morning that as we open your word, it would do just that. It would illumine our way. God, I pray that you'd help us to be obedient to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Titus chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to look at the whole chapter of Titus 2. It's page 1097 in a pew Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. And many of you who know Samantha and myself, you know that we have two children at home. And one of those happens to be a two-year-old boy. And there's a common phrase that is often used when talking about two-year-olds, and that is the terrible twos. And I don't at all want to say that Graham is terrible, but we have discovered that he is beginning to find an attitude. And uh, there will oftentimes be uh, times when we're sitting at the dinner table, and we have provided chicky for him, and he does not want to eat the chicky. And so we'll say, Graham, you have to eat this. And he'll say, no. And there'll be other times when we're down in the basement and it's, it's time to clean up and time to get ready for bed and he'll have toys all over the basement. And we'll say, Graham, it's time to clean up our toys. No. And we all giggle and laugh because it is, it is sort of funny, it is sort of cute. But what we understand, if you are thinking ahead, is that that small, seemingly insignificant problem is going to grow and fester and become far worse if not dealt with. And that little two-year-old attitude is going to become something far worse if we don't deal with it now. And there's a problem not only in our house with an attitude, but there's a problem in the church. Now, when I say that there's a problem in the church, I'm not talking only our church. I'm talking churches in general. And what's interesting about the scripture is that there seems to be the same issues that we have in church now were the same issues that were being dealt with thousands of years ago. It's amazing that people really have not changed that much over the course of thousands of years. We still have issues. We still deal with problems. And what Paul is addressing this morning in the book of Titus is this issue of false teaching. Now, when I say false teaching, we probably are all thinking, all right, someone is getting up in the pulpit and they're saying things that don't line up with Scripture. They're saying things that are contrary to what the Bible really believes. And if you're thinking that, you're right. That is false teaching. But Paul is also concerned with what that false teaching produces in people's lives. I want us to look at a few verses in chapter 1 to set up chapter 2. Because there's a problem in the church and Paul is about to address it. So he he tells us in chapter 1 verse 5 why he has put uh, Titus, or why he has left Titus in Crete. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul has done some missionary work in Crete, and he has set up some churches, 
And now it's time for Paul to leave. This is Paul's common, uh, this is what he usually does, is he will go to a place where the gospel has not been preached, he will preach the gospel, he will lead people to Jesus, he will set up churches, and then he will leave to go do that same thing in a different place where the gospel has not yet been preached. And so it seems that Titus has been raised up as a leader, perhaps he was a convert of Paul, and he has become a leader of all the churches. Right? He's overseeing these churches, and Paul is saying, I am putting you in charge, or I've left you in Crete, to continue the work, to continue what I've left, but also to appoint elders in all the churches. There needs to be elders or pastors or overseers in these churches who will care for the people and will teach them the word of God. And then he gives this list of qualifications for someone who can be an elder. Maybe you've heard these before, but look down at verse 9. This is how he sums up. This is how he finishes. This is the last qualification that he gives. Talking about the overseers to be put in place. He says, they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give sound instruction or instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul says, this person that you're going to put in charge must be able to teach sound doctrine. And they must be able to recognize false doctrine and to rebuke it. See, Paul understands that if if we receive false teaching, if we receive wrong teaching, it's going to lead to wrong action. Notice that in the very next verse. He says in verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those among the circumcision party. So he's saying we are aware that there are people in the churches at Crete that are teaching things contrary to what the Bible teaches. And look at how it manifests itself. Look down at verse 16, the last verse of the chapter. Paul says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. My first point this morning is that our behavior displays what we believe. Our behavior displays what we believe. You see, Paul has set up Titus to say, hey, we've got to deal with the issue of false teaching Not just because we don't want people hearing the wrong things, but because Paul understands that if we believe the wrong things, it's going to cause us to act the wrong way. Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. We know that as hypocrite. And this is the problem that the church is dealing with. It's hypocrites. And and, and if you've been around church for any amount of time, and if you have tried to invite a friend to church who is not a church-going person, and you have probably heard this excuse, I don't want to go to that church because it's full of hypocrites. We've all heard it. I see some of y'all shaking your head. I've heard it. Maybe I used to think that myself. And why is the church filled with hypocrites? It's because they profess to know God, but by the way they live, they deny him. That is what a hypocrite is. And Paul is saying, this is an issue at the church in Crete. 
And this is an issue in our churches, in all churches. Certainly, our church is not exempt from this issue. I think very highly of our church. I love our church. I never want to say, man, our church is terrible in this area. But I recognize that with this many people in the congregation this morning, surely some of us, perhaps all of us at some point, have been professing to know God but denying him by our works. And Paul is instructing Titus saying this is not acceptable. We cannot be churches filled with people who say the right things but live all the wrong ways. So in chapter 2, Paul begins to instruct Titus on how he's going to deal with the hypocrites in the church. It begins, chapter 2, he says, As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So again, he's repeating, Titus, make sure that you are teaching sound doctrine. You are teaching what the Bible says. You're not adding to it. You're not taking away from it. You are teaching only what the Bible says. But then in verse 2, he starts talking about specifics, about how people are to act. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So Paul is instructing Titus, he says, teach sound doctrine. Oh yeah, and older men, here's how they should live. Okay, but he goes on. Verse 3 says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. But that's not it. Look down at verse 6. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's also not it. Look down at verse 9. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So Paul has now addressed multiple different uh, pockets of people within the church. And Paul is concerned with how their lives are lived out. This is why I titled the sermon, My Lifestyle Matters to God. Paul is very much so aware and concerned with the way that we live our lives, the way we are perceived by the world. Now, I want us to look back at chapter 1 real quickly. Because in all of this discussion about these false teachers, Paul says there is something that's commonly known about the Cretans. Paul is obviously writing this letter because he knows that the churches in Crete are familiar with the culture in Crete. And in verse 12, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He says, This is what's commonly known about the people of Crete. They're liars, they're evil beasts, and they're lazy gluttons. I hope that's not said about us. As Americans, perhaps it is. Perhaps that's commonly known about us. But with this in mind, Paul is reminding Titus, he says, this is what everybody thinks when they hear, oh, he's a Cretan or she's a Cretan. They think liar, evil beast, lazy glutton. 
Now, let's look back at what Paul instructs how these lives should look for the men, women, younger women, younger men, and bondservants. Verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, older men are to be sober-minded. Notice a contrast to perhaps being a glutton. Having no control over our appetites, whether it's an appetite for alcohol or, or an appetite for food or an appetite for entertainment or an appetite for uh, acceptance, whatever it is, Paul is saying older men should be sober-minded. We should be in the right mind. We should not be allowing other things to control our minds and to determine what we say and what we do. He says they're to be dignified. Do you think someone who's known as a liar, an evil beast, and a lazy glutton is known as dignified? Absolutely not. Paul says, for those older men in the church, we need to be men who are dignified, not known as liars, not known as evil beasts or as lazy gluttons. He says, we as men in the church cannot be the way they are outside in the culture. Then he says, self-controlled. He uses this one to describe everybody. This is absolutely in direct contrast to a glutton. Being a glutton means that we are just given over to our appetites, whatever that appetite might be. It's not going to be the same thing for every single person. For some, it might be food, and we have issues with saying no and, and overeating. For some, it may be acceptance. And we will not stop at anything until we believe that everyone has accepted us for who we are. It could be a variety of things, but, but gluttony means that we have no control over our appetites. Our appetites control us. They determine what we do and why we do it. Paul says the Cretans are known for being lazy and gluttonous. He says the older men in the church must be men who are self-controlled. We have control over our appetites. We are not controlled by anything, but we control what we allow in our life, what we enjoy in our life. He also says that they are to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. He says these have got to be men who believe in Jesus wholeheartedly. They are sound in faith. They believe what the Bible teaches. They're not holding to the false teaching of perhaps these Judaizers or people of the circumcision party. They're believing wholeheartedly Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says they need to be sound in love. We need to be sound in the way that we love one another. Older men should be sound in the way they love their wives. It shouldn't just be, hey, I'm going to love you now because you've been really kind to me. It should be nonstop, constant love for our wives, for our children, for our families, for our church. And he says we need to be sound in steadfastness. We're not streaky. We're not dependable and reliable at times. We're not dignified and self-controlled at times. It is a constant. Over the course of our life, over the longevity, these are men who are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. But notice, Paul is directly contrasting the way the older men should be living with the way the culture is living. But he doesn't stop with just the men. 
Verse 3, he says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. They're not to be out of control. They're not to be wild and crazy. They're to be reverent. The way that they behave themselves shows people that they care about others, that they care about God, that they love God. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Slanderers is in direct contrast to they're known as liars. Y'all, we, we have a different word for slander. We would call it gossip. And it's not just for the women. It's not that only women need to hear this. It's for all of us. To slander people means we talk about them behind their back. We tear them down to other people, but yet we're kind to their face. Paul says this is what, this is what the Christians are known for. They're known as liars. They're known as they're going to go behind your back and say mean things and be awful behind your back, but to your face, you know, they're going to put on a good show. Paul says the women in the church have got to be different. They cannot be that same way. We cannot be women who are slandering one another. We cannot be women who are slaves to much wine. Again, this idea of contrast to being a glutton. Perhaps the women in the culture were given over to their love for wine. Perhaps they thought of it as, well, I'm just a wine connoisseur. But Paul says, no, they are given over to it. They are gluttonous. They don't know when to stop, and they can't stop. He says, that's not us. That's not women in the church. That's not women who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. He says, we are different. He says, they're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. There's that self-control again. To be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. There's this idea that the older women are not just to be countercultural to what the Cretans are. They are also to be teaching the younger women. There's this idea of discipleship. Perhaps oftentimes you've heard Titus 2 talked about in the context of discipleship. The older women should be taking the younger women under their wing and teaching them the things that they have learned in life. Teaching them how to love their husband when their husband seems unlovable. Teaching them how to love their children when perhaps their children seem uncontrollable. But men are not exempt either. He's about to talk about the young men. And who do you think he's assuming is going to teach the young men? The older men. Church, we have got to be sure that we understand this pattern of discipleship. If we want our young men to grow up to be older men who are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness, that's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen by the older men being intentional and seeking out younger men and teaching them these things. If we want younger women who are going to be uh, reverent in behavior, not slandering, not slaves to much wine, then we need the older women who are those things to be seeking out the younger women and teaching them those things. Y'all, growing up new godly generations does not happen on accident. It does not happen by chance. It happens because we understand that we have knowledge and wisdom to pass on to the next generation. 
God has put us in a place where we can now raise up other people to understand the things that we have learned for ourselves. But then in verse 6, Paul addresses the young men. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This is the third time that Paul has said that we should be self-controlled. And I really do believe it's in direct contrast to the Cretans being known as gluttons. I don't know how often we think about being self-controlled. But it's an interesting thought that when Paul is describing the way we should live in the church, over and over and over again, he's mentioning self-control. Self-control. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But then in verse 9, he goes down and he's talking about bond servants. If you were not here last week, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to Josh's sermon. Josh talked about this issue of slavery in the Bible and how should we understand that. And he articulated it incredibly well. I would highly recommend that you listen to that sermon. But Paul is addressing the bond servants. He says they're to be submissive to their masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, and not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Church, what I want you all to see is that Paul is concerned with the conduct of how they live their lives. Because here's what Paul knows. The way we behave points to what we believe. Now, look at verse 5. He has just addressed the, the older men and the older women and taught the, the older women how to train the younger women. And at the end of verse 5, he says, you are to do these things, you are to live this way, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul does not say, live this way because that's what's right. Live this way because that's what's expected of you as a church person. Paul says, you need to live this way because if you don't, the word of God is being reviled. He says, if you as the church are people who profess God with your mouth but deny him by your works, you revile the word of God. That's huge. Something big is at stake. But look again down at verse 7. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Church, your conduct matters because when we profess to know God with our mouth but deny him by our works, that gives our opponents reason to say evil things about us. That gives our opponent reason to believe wrong things about God. Paul says this is what's at stake in the way that we live our lives. If we, like the Cretans, profess God with our mouth but deny him by our works, people won't believe the right things about God. Look at the end of verse 10. Speaking to the bondservants, he says, You are to do these things so that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul says, church, 
I'm not telling you to live different from the culture just because that sounds like a good thing to do. Paul says you need to be different from the culture because when you are, it adorns the doctrine of God. When you are different from the world, the world sees, wow, God must be awesome. God must be incredible because he has truly changed that person's life. The church has a problem. That problem is hypocrisy. That problem is when we profess to know God with our mouth, but we deny him by our works. And Paul says the church has got to be different. The church cannot be the same way as the world. But Paul doesn't just say, all right, let's change and let's be different. Paul gives us the answer. Paul now tells us, how is the church going to be different from the world? How is this going to happen? How is all of us in here, how are we going to change from being like the world, which we used to be, to being distinctly different? My second point this morning is that the gospel is the source of godliness. The gospel is the source of of godliness. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says we as the church need to be distinct from the world. But he says, I'm not instructing you to just try harder, to do a little better, to put forth a little more effort. Paul says the way that the church is going to be distinct from the world is by clinging to the gospel. He says in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What Paul is referring to is the coming of Christ. The grace of God is the kindness that he shows us in giving us his son. That is the ultimate gracious moment that God has given. We did not deserve to receive Jesus. We did not do anything that he should have to give his son for us. He simply did it because he loves us. Paul says in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so when Paul says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, he says he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus coming, being born of a virgin, living a perfect, sinless, obedient life. And going to the cross on our behalf, bearing our sin and our guilt, and dying on the cross because the wrath of God was poured out on him, and being buried in the tomb, and three days later rising from the dead. That is the grace of God which has appeared, and Paul says that brings salvation for all people. Now, let me be clear Paul is not saying all people will be saved, Paul is saying all people can be saved. Anyone 
who looks to Jesus and believes on him for the forgiveness of sins can and will be forgiven of their sins. Do you have a neighbor, a friend, a family member who does not believe? They can. The gospel is for them as much as it's for you. But Paul says the grace of God has appeared. It's brought salvation for all people. But notice what else it's doing. It doesn't just bring salvation, but here is what it does. Verse 12, he says, It is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The gospel does not just save us. The gospel transforms us. Let me say that again. The gospel does not just save us. The gospel transforms us. He says the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness. Ungodliness is anything that God does not love. Ungodliness is anything that is sin. Ungodliness is anything that God hates. And what the grace of God is doing, when we believe on Jesus in the gospel is that the grace of God is saving us, but it's also training us. It is teaching us to hate our sin, to hate the things that God hates, to turn away from ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul has just been talking about how the Christians are known as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He says, you all, if you're in a church at Crete, chances are you used to be one of those liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But he says, what the grace of God does in the lives of those who believe is it trains us to renounce those things. The gospel trains us to hate our sin. The gospel trains us to turn away from the things that we used to love but it also teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He says not only does the gospel save us, it's also at work in our hearts to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's at work in our hearts to make us hate our sin. But not just that. It's also at work in our hearts to help us live self-controlled. That's that huge word that Paul has been using over and over and over again in contrast with the Christians being gluttons. He says the gospel is going to teach us how to be self-controlled. It's going to teach us how to not be slaves to our old passions and desires and all of those things going to teach us to have control over those things. It's going to teach us, by the power of Jesus, to control our appetites. He says the gospel is training us to live self-controlled, upright. The gospel is teaching us how to live in a way that is honoring to God. The gospel is going to teach us to do the things that God loves. He says it's teaching us to be self-controlled, upright, and to be godly in this present age. I don't know if you follow the news or if you're aware that our culture seems to be really bad. It seems to be really bad. And I've heard people say, 
man, I don't know if I want to have kids because I don't know that I want them to be in this world. This world has gotten so bad, I can't imagine. It's only just going to get worse. Why would I want to bring kids into this horrible, awful, terrible world? By the power of the gospel, it is possible to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, even in this present age. And that statement will be true for all of eternity. No matter how bad the world gets, no matter how bad our culture may be, it will always be possible by the power of the gospel to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. But there's another thing the gospel does. Verse 13. The gospel is training us to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the gospel saves us, the gospel trains us to hate our sin and to love our God and to live for him in an honorable, upright, godly way, but the gospel also teaches us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep our eyes on the hope that we have in the gospel. That is, that God will send his son once again and he will ransom us. And we, he will do away with every possible sin, and he will wipe away every tear from our eye, and he will make all things right. The gospel is saving us, it's transforming us, and it is keeping our eyes on our Savior. That is what the gospel does for those who believe. And Paul is saying, if we are going to be a church that's distinct from the world, that we are different, it's going to be because We are believing in the gospel. We are clinging to the grace that God has given us in Jesus at the cross. But Paul is not satisfied with just telling us that. Paul says, you also need to be reminded of what the gospel is. In verse 14, he says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says, if you want to know what happens in the gospel, here's what happens. Jesus Christ gave himself. He was one with God in all of eternity. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant And he gave himself for us. He did not deserve to die. He was perfect. He was sinless. But yet he gave himself for us to do what? To redeem us. Because he knows that all of us were under the yoke of slavery. Everyone in this room, everyone in this world is under the yoke of slavery to sin. And we have no way out apart from Jesus redeeming us. He says, he gave himself for us all to redeem us from all lawlessness. We are people who are enslaved to breaking God's law. We can do nothing else until Jesus redeems us. But that's not all he did. He says, he came and he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. 
a people for his own possession. Do you see that? Twice, Paul says, we are now his. Those whom he has redeemed and purified are for his own possession. He says, but God gave himself, Jesus gave himself to redeem us and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. In the gospel, Jesus gives himself for us to redeem us from all of our sinfulness, from all of our lawlessness, and to purify us. Church, if you're believing in Jesus, if you're trusting that he really did go to the cross in your place and bear your penalty and your sins, not only has he redeemed you and taken you out of the slavery and sin, but he is also at work to purify you. To purify you from looking like the Cretans who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And to transform you into someone who looks like his son Jesus. This is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel is. And Paul is saying, if we're going to be people who are distinct from the world. Or different from our culture. In order to adorn the doctrine of God so that they would see that God is awesome and that God is worthy and that God is everything you could ever want. He says it's only going to come if the church clings to the gospel. It's not going to come if we just get in here and we think, all right, how can we be better? How can we, how can we look better on the outside? How can people perceive us better? Ah, I've come up with 10 steps. Let's just follow these steps. That won't do it. No amount of effort we can give will make us live in such a way that people outside will adorn the doctrine of God. Our only hope of being a church that is distinct from the world, that is different, and that adorns the doctrine of God through the way that we live is by being people who hold tightly to the gospel. Paul encourages Titus, he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Paul understands that the most important thing we can do when we gather as a church is to proclaim the gospel. Y'all, the gospel is that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify us for a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We don't just do good works because we want to, because we think it's a good idea. We are people who, with all of our passion, with all of our desire, we want to please God. Notice back the last verse, chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, the Cretans, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Those who are not truly believing in the grace of Jesus are unfit for any good work. There's not a good work you can do that will please God. But when we are clinging and holding fast to the gospel, Paul says we will be people who are zealous, for good works. 
Pray with me. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the words that Paul wrote to Titus. And I pray, God, that these words would weigh heavy on our hearts. That we cannot be a people who profess to know God with our mouth but deny him by our works. That will tell the world that God is no good. That will revile the word of God. But when we cling to the gospel, when we cling to the grace of Jesus, you will transform us. Your grace will be at work in making us a people who are absolutely different from the world and in our lives that will work itself out in adorning the doctrine of our God. God, we pray that you would help us to do this this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.